Ready. This is your Professor Debbie. Welcome to True Crime University, where we have intellectual discussions about crime. This is a class for mature audiences with mature language and subject matter. Our purpose is to learn about criminals, not glorify them. And my aim, as always, is education. All of the information I have is from public sources. Hello, class. How's everybody today? I'm actually doing really good, if anybody cares. Today is Amazon Day. That's for those of you who aren't addicted to Amazon like me. That's the day of the week you pick when all your shit comes. Everything's in one order and you get that discount on, you know, for Kindle books and stuff. And I'm also excited because I got a new toy and it is a new audio editor. So hopefully from now on, I'm not currently using it, by the way, but it's supposed to clean up my audio. Well, I tried it and it does. It's it's awesome. And I'm going to go back and clean up shittier older episodes with bad audio. So that's going to be going on. That's a project that I'm going to do. So we're going to finish talking about these Canadian wackos here. Big trigger warning, as I mentioned last time. We're going to talk about all kinds of violence and torture and sadistic acts. Sexual, some of them some of them are with kids. So for some people, this may be hard to listen to. I'm telling you up front, so in case you don't want to be disturbed. In the first place, why are you here? Because you know I'm disturbing. But just warning Nance up front. So when we last left off with Rock Terrio and his merry band of weirdos, they were in their compound in the Gaspé Peninsula. So in November of 1980, they got a new member, some guy, literally some guy, named Guy, or Guy is the French would say. So Guy had seen, first I should mention that he was a mental patient. I don't know what his exact diagnosis was, but he had been in the hospital in Quebec City, ironically the same one that Rock had been in getting his psychiatric evaluation. And he saw this cult on TV and he thought that that seemed like a really good idea to him to join this cult. So he literally finds them in the woods. I don't really know how. This is 1980, so this is way before like GPS and stuff like that. But anyway, he found them and I guess he's like, hi, I saw you on TV. I'm interested in joining. And Rock let him stay, but he could tell that he wasn't altogether right. So he gave him like the uh, bottom of the totem pole. And in this cult where everybody's treated like shit, if you're on the bottom of the totem pole, um, okay, you're like below shit. So he has to sleep in the storage shed away from everybody else. He's given one meal a day. I don't know if Rock thinks that mentally ill people need less food. Who knows what he thinks. And he is given the job of babysitting or tending to the animal children of the cult. You heard me right. I said animal children. And let me explain who they were. There was two-year-old Samuel Jaguar and his sister, six-year-old Miriam, and two-year-old Simon, who was the son of Solange and Claude. They were called animals by rock because they were not his biological children. So according to him, if you're a kid and you're not his biological kid, then you're on the level of animals and you were treated like one. And what this meant was the quote-unquote animal kids were kept like separate from the rock biological kids. And come to think of it, maybe this wasn't such a bad idea to be kept away from him because, well, for obvious reasons. He treated these kids worse than the other kids, meaning, you know, his kids. One of his favorite punishments for them was to nail them to trees by their clothes. So they were like kind of hanging there. And the other kids, at his direction, of course, would throw rocks at them. So 
in March of 1980, they had a party, and the reason for this party was to celebrate Rock's two oldest kids, remember, from his first marriage, who were ages 12 and 10. They were coming to live on the compound, and who knows what circumstance was going on in their life that their mother, this would be Francine, his first wife, thought that that was in any way a good idea. But anyway, on this one particular night, basically what happened was poor little Samuel, who's only two, kept crying, as babies do. And Guy was kept awake by this incessant crying, and he was mad at Sam. So he kept telling him, shut up, shut up. And kid's not listening. So he picks him up by the neck, I guess, or the throat, whatever, and punched him in the face like five or six times. A two-year-old kid. So the next day, poor Sam is all like bruised and swollen and rocks like, um, what happened to Sam? His head was flopping around because probably, and I don't know, I'm just kind of assuming that he might have had something wrong with his neck because heads aren't supposed to flop around. And his penis was swollen. I have no idea why, but anyway, it was. So you know how Rock had this thing where he thought he knew about medicine and surgery? Well, he would do surgery on these people, and it was um, willing or with their consent. He thought that for whatever reason, I guess since he had read so much about it, that he could literally perform surgery. So he decided he's going to do surgery on little Sam. And he enlisted the help of Gabrielle, who had been a nurse and was like the nurse for the, for the group. And to sedate him for what he was going to do, he poured 94% ethanol into his mouth. Um, no, that's not going to anesthetize somebody. That's going to kill somebody. Spoiler alert. Hey, she didn't see that coming. So he cut open his little pee-pee. Yeah. And lanced it. Remember I said it was swollen and he couldn't pee. So now pee came out. It's a miracle. He fixed him. Well, the next day, little Sam was dead. And his mother, Maurice, when she heard that this had happened, she was just went about her work and just like, you know. So the group decided to burn him so that animals wouldn't get his remains. But fortunately, he didn't burn all the way. It's really hard to burn a body unless you're in a crematorium because it has to be like really, really hot in there. So six months later in September, for like no reason or no reason that anybody could figure out. Rock's drunk and you know how he gets when he's drunk. He's a mean drunk, only like meaner than he is normally, which is really, really frightening. So he's mad at Guy for some reason and he decides that he should stand trial for Sam's death. So he gets together a court which consists of Jacques, who, you know, Sam's dad. He's the judge. Giselle, who was Sam's mom, is the prosecutor. Claude was the defense attorney, and six wives were the jury. The trial lasted an hour, and I would have really liked to see this. I have a feeling it would be both hilarious, and if we weren't talking about the brutal murder of a child, extremely disturbing. Well, the jury found him not guilty by reason of insanity, and this wasn't good enough for rock because he remember i told you that he likes to punish people and he likes to do surgery so he sees an opportunity to do both and he's like you know i have an idea let's castrate Guy." and they voted and the eyes won as they say so the crazy thing is rock actually talked Guy into this he said it would cure him of the constant headaches that he had now, I took anatomy in high school and college, and if I remember anatomy correctly, I don't remember any connection between the head and the genitals. But, I mean, I didn't read all these textbooks on medicine like he did either. And even stranger, but then again, Guy was legitimately mentally ill, he signed a consent form for this. So, Guy lays on the kitchen table, and, of course, Gabrielle is assisting because she's the nurse. Rock puts a gum band. That's what we call them here in Pittsburgh. 
I think the rest of the world calls them rubber bands around his um, sack and then castrates him with a razor blade. He then takes his balls, wraps them in some tissue, and disposes of them. And supposedly, he's scrotum blood for a week, but guess what? He didn't have any more headaches. And that is possible. That could be the placebo effect. You know, he's told that this is going to cure your headaches, and then miraculously, he doesn't have headaches. That could simply be the power of suggestion there. So I do believe that that was possible. So now Brock, who's generally paranoid to begin with, thought that he might be a danger to them because of what was done to him. And sometimes this this dude was kind of right on. It's kind of creepy, actually. So what he did was he stepped up in torturing him more than like he usually did and made everybody else join in too. So in November, Guy decided that he just couldn't stand any more torture and he escaped to the closest village where he told people that a baby had died on the compound, but he said that Sam had been kicked to death or stomped by horse. So the police, who were probably sitting there waiting for the slightest reason to arrest these people again, raided the commune again and arrested Rock and both of Sam's parents. There were seven kids there, and they put them in foster homes. Fortunately, they found Sam's remains because he wasn't completely burned. And when the members were questioned, they told about Guy beating Sam and what had happened, the, uh, him being castrated and such. So the coroner determined that the group was responsible for Sam's death. And Rock, Jacques, Maurice, Gabrielle, and Guy were charged with criminal negligence causing bodily harm. Claude, who had burned the body, was charged with obstruction of justice. Jacques and Maurice were charged with neglect of their older daughter, and Claude and Solange were charged with neglect of their son, Simon. Rock and Gabrielle were also charged with bodily harm, with intent to mutilate in the castration of Guy. Everybody pled not guilty. Everybody but Rock and Gabrielle got bail on the condition that they didn't return to the compound, which they didn't because the authorities bulldozed everything to the ground. So the rest of them got apartments in Quebec City so that they could be close to their leader, who, despite being in jail, still had a hold on them just like Manson. Their trial lasted for nine months, and everybody was found guilty of everything that they were charged with. Maurice and Solange were given three years probation. Jacques and Claude were given six months of jail plus three years probation. Guy was given a sentence, but it was later vacated due to his mental incompetence, and he was returned to the hospital that he had just come out of. Gabrielle was sentenced to nine months plus a three-year probation, and their leader, Pappy, was sentenced to two years minus one day, followed by three years of probation. He served his time in the Orsainville Detention Center in Quebec City, and while he was there, he decided that he was going to write a memoir. So he started writing notes for this, and it was published in 1983. It was called L'Affaire Moise, meaning the affairs of Moses. It actually is a real book. It's not available. However, it's in French. So if anybody really wants to find it, and you can read French, knock yourself out trying to find it. So Rock was released from prison in February of 1984. His followers wanted to stay in the city, but he was like, no, let's find somewhere else and start over. Because to be properly run cult, you have to be far away from the eyes of the authority and the public so that you can do mischief. Again, cult leading 101. The farther you are from society, the more isolated your people are and the harder it is for them to get help. So they paid $12,000 Canadian money for a lot in the town of Burnt River, which is in Victoria County, Ontario. I have the location on a map in my social media. Where they got this money from, 
I'd really like to know. That's kind of a lot of money, especially in 1984. I'm guessing it was from all of them pulling together their savings and their earnings from the baked goods and stuff. So they go to this new place and they start work on a new cabin. And this place was a little bit more um, involved than the old one. They had a sawmill and a horse-drawn treadmill to get water from a spring. And besides the baked goods store, they had a place where they made and sold maple syrup because, you know, Canada. And they had a farm where they grew vegetables and they had animals there. And this actually could have been a nice little self-sustaining community if their leader wasn't an actual homicidal maniac. At that particular point in time, the cult, besides Pappy, had two men and nine women, four of whom were pregnant, and 10 kids, ages 1 to 15. Four pregnant women at the same time. Can you imagine hormones and really have never been around a pregnant woman for any length of time, but correct me if I'm wrong, don't they get like grumpy and moody and and stuff like that and to be in such an abusive and just all around unhealthy environment at a time like this wow just wow so canada's children's aid society which would be like i don't know cps or cfs in the united states was aware of these this uh, commune and bob gallopo was the first official go on the compound and just kind of check out, check it out, see what was going on. And they knew about the cult's past and they were keeping tabs on them. Bob was quoted as saying, when we first went there, we were quite impressed by the workmanship. As soon as the vehicles arrived, we could see all the people scatter. The only person who emerged was Rock, end quote. He said Rock was cautiously polite End quote. The nurse checked the kids and they seemed okay, but something just didn't feel right. Most of them decided not to leave because they were scared of him. They were scared he would haunt their dreams and come after them and kill them because they were brainwashed. End quote. Rock believed he had magic powers, especially when he was drunk, and it seemed like when he was drunk he was at his most violent and abusive and irrational. I want to take just a couple minutes to tell you about BarkBox. Nathan and I love BarkBox. He just got the March shipment a couple days ago. And the theme is Madagascar. And it has these cute animal toys. There's like, I think it's supposed to be a lemur. And there's, I don't know what it is, but it's cute. But my favorite is a frog on a lily pad. And there's glitter on it too. And I'm a sucker for glitter. I love glittery things. And he just loves these toys. His favorite is the lemur. And he'll grab a toy, bring it up onto the bed, and then lay there and chew it. Then he'll get down. He'll bring up another toy, repeat, repeat, until there's like 20 toys on the bed. I'm like, dude, how many toys does one need in bed? But it's really cute. There's, you know, like 20 cute toys lying there in bed. And if you want to try out BarkBox for you and your dog, just go in my show notes and follow the link that says BarkBox slash True Crime University, and you will get a whole free month of BarkBox. And if you do get BarkBox, take pictures of your dogs with their BarkBox toys and email them to me and it'll I'll put them on my Instagram so that everybody can see all our cute dogs playing with their BarkBox toys. So back to this cult. Rock gave each wife a different job, a different chore. Like you cook, you do laundry, whatever. The lowest on the totem pole was always Maurice Grenier. And he just had it in for her. He never really liked her. I don't really know why. But he forbid her from sleeping with her husband, Jock, and encouraged Jock to beat her if she talked back to either him or Rock. Supposedly, Maurice had some kind of birthmark on her, as many people do. So Rock convinced Jock that this birthmark looked like a 666 sign and that it meant that she was like a devil person. You know, it was like the sign of the devil 
which is crazy, of course, but so is everything else that he's telling these people. And eventually he ordered her to live apart in her own hut with her two kids. Now, I know I've alluded to rock punishing these people for breaking rules. So let me describe more of what exactly I mean by breaking rules and what his punishments were. According to Rock, who by now, you know, he thought of himself as a messenger of God. If somebody disobeyed him, they were disobeying God. And God would tell him that he must punish these people. One of the rules was called straying from the flock. And that would mean trying to run away, which people did. Having their own thoughts or opinions. Talking to others other members of the cult without him present, and not selling enough of their goods, like baked goods, syrup, whatever it was. Or sometimes just for the reason that God told him to. And these are the things he did to punish them. He would hit them with the blunt end of an axe. He would beat them with hammers and belts. He would hang them by the ceiling. He would make them sit on hot stoves. He would force them to break their own legs with a sledgehammer. He would cut off fingers, toes, we know, already heard about that, and pull teeth with pliers. He, um, kind of like Albert Fish and Gerard Schaefer, he had a thing about poop. I guess he thought, well, I mean, it is disgusting. So he thought it would make a good element of punishment. He would poop on people, make them eat poop, whether their own or his or whose is not specified, but just the idea is disgusting enough. He made somebody eat a dead mouse once, and one of the most disturbing is one time he gave somebody a wine enema. He encouraged them to steal from the local grocery stores in the town of Lindsay. Supposedly, Lindsay was the closest town to their compound, and this is where they would go to get goods that they couldn't produce themselves. And they even made shoplifting jackets. They were jackets with really big pockets, and I think you can kind of fill in with your mind what those were for. In January of 1985, Jacques Jaguer, Gabrielle, Claude, Nicole, and Rock Jr. were all caught shoplifting. Together between them, they had stolen about $450 worth of stuff. So they were banned from shopping in the town of Lindsay. Rock also encouraged them to beg from their families. And since he had earlier told them not to bother their families, needless to say, if they had estranged themselves from, say, their parents, and then all of a sudden they're like, hey, mom and dad, can you give me some money? The parents weren't necessarily all that thrilled to help out with money. So that didn't go over very well. These are some of the things that Rock liked to do for amusement. And he couldn't just read or knit or something tranquil. He had to do something that involved torturing people because he was a shitbag. He liked to watch wrestling matches. And these would be with at least two women, usually naked, wrestling in mud or dirt. Sometimes he would throw either himself or one of the dudes in just for a little bit of variety. If that's not disturbing enough, he would take two of his wives to bed and have sex with both. And that's not quite so out there. But he would have an orgasm contest. And he would see which of the two could have the most orgasms. I have no idea what the prize was. And I, I really wonder if anybody ever told him that women can fake orgasms. Duh. He would orchestrate orgies. I don't think I have to go into any further detail. But just to throw in more... Um, disgustingness. He would make them lick each other's buttholes and smear each other with poop. And it is rumored that he made kids either watch and or participate in said orgies. This part's kind of interesting and I want to go into a little bit of detail on this. He told them that the punishment was cathartic or cleansing or purifying and after he had tortured people he would 
and I mentioned this before, I don't know if he really felt guilty or if he was just acting, but he would cry and sob and I'm sorry, you know, blah, blah, blah. There is really something psychological to pain being kind of cathartic or cleansing. And that might sound kind of bizarre, but ask anybody who's ever had a tattoo. And some of us use the term ink therapy. Yeah, it hurts. I have seven of them. But there's also something that's kind of um, cathartic about it. It's hard to explain. It's like the pain from getting the tattoo is releasing endorphins in your brain, which are caused by pain, but also have kind of a good feeling too. So it's like it hurts, but in a way it feels good because you can concentrate, especially if you're somebody who has a bunch of emotional pain in them, you can concentrate on the physical pain. And while you're doing that, you forget about your emotional pain. It really is a thing, I swear. Ask anybody who's ever had a tattoo or maybe Google it. But anyway, another death occurred on January 26th of 1985. Gabrielle had a five-month-old baby named Elazar. And I was, would assume that's a biblical name. This was also Rock's biological child. So there's no telling why he hated this baby so much. I mean, I don't know what a five-month-old baby can do to deserve such hate, but we're talking about Rock. We're not talking about a rational person. Supposedly, Rock said that this kid also had a mark of the devil. He would often beat him. So Gabrielle thought that what she would do, and I mean, I can kind of see, but it's like, oh, can you think of a different way? She put him in a wheelbarrow out in the snow. It was in the morning. It was 10 degrees Celsius there, or 14 degrees Fahrenheit. So he froze to death within half an hour, and that had to be a horrible death. She called it a mercy killing because she didn't want him growing up being beaten and treated like he was by his own father. Eventually, he allowed Maurice, that's the girl that he doesn't like for some reason, he let her leave with two of her three kids, provided that her oldest daughter, who was nearing puberty, stay and be like in training to become one of his next wives. Maurice had been with him for eight years. And when she got out into like the real world, she had to relearn how to function in the real world. So eventually she decided that she was going to try to get back custody of her, the daughter that she left with Rock. So she testified at a hearing and the children's service came in and took the kids that were there and put them in foster homes. This would be in December of 1985. There were six cops and 10 social workers. They took 14 kids. One of the things that prompted this raid was there were reports of rock holding babies over the open well in order to prompt their mothers into doing his bidding or doing whatever he wanted. So the kids are in their foster homes and they're being interviewed about what went on. And the authorities were like, oh my God, the things these kids went through were horrific. So I'll, I'll tell you a little, about, a little bit about some of what the kids said that, that they had experienced. Now, I already told you about the so-called animals the three kids that weren't Rock's biological kids and how they were treated. When they were rescued, they were found to be severely malnourished. They crawled, meaning they didn't know how to walk. Their teeth were rotten because they apparently didn't get any kind of real medical care. And they had to do chores, which is fine. Nothing wrong with doing chores. But some of the chores they did were washing the female members sanitary napkins. And I'm assuming that this was the days before the, uh, I, I'm, I've always known the disposable type. I think back in the old days they had, uh, I, I can't even imagine this, reusable ones that were more like cloth diapers, I guess. I don't know, but whatever it is, it's disgusting. These kids were deprived of sleep, food, education. That is normal education, like how to read and write and stuff. But Rock taught them his own demented version of things, and that would be religion and sex. He would have them 
join rituals in which they would chant and who knows what else. One time he sacrificed a goat in front of them. I guess he was trying to teach something called blood sacrifice that God orders blood sacrifice, which is crazy in and of itself. But this wasn't just any old goat that he picked from the bunch of animals. This was like a pet who the kids loved. The children later described to the authorities that they had been part of sex rites, which I don't know any more details of, nor do I think we really need to. Rock and his son Rock Jr., molested and raped these kids and he had them masturbate him or watch as they masturbated each other or themselves and he called this sex ed. So the court ordered an independent assessment and a doctor, supposedly an expert in child abuse named Dr. Martine Milkovich, she compiled a 300-page report and this woman was, as the French would say, idiot. And I think you can translate that. She recommended that all the kids be returned to the compound and, quote, praised Brock's pioneering spirit and his courage and fortitude on leading his group back to nature. And then she said, he did it, sex as a form of education, end quote. So don't worry, she's not going to be able to pull the wool over the judge's eyes, in case you were worried about that. The hearing was eight months long, and in October of 1987, Judge Bolio ruled, his ruling was 83 pages long, that the kids were to be wards of the crown, because this is Canada, and here in the United States, we would say wards of the court. Their parents were to have no access to them. He described Rock as a manipulative despot, which is pretty accurate. However, there was still not enough evidence to press criminal charges against Rock. So sometime around this time, Rock discovered Mormons, or more precisely, the Mormon fundamentalist movement. I don't know how, because this was way before the internet. I don't know if he saw it in a newspaper or, or what. But anyway, he went to Utah, which I'm really curious as to how he did this, you know, how, how he was able to afford this trip. But he met with a dude who was the branch president of the Latter-day Saints, which is Mormon's his name was Dr. Jess Grosbeck, and he was a polygamist, as at that time anyway, the Mormons were into. And they became good friends. It turns out that they were both wackos. And this Dr. Grosbeck presented Rock with jewels and a crown in some kind of ridiculous ceremony. So, to make himself even more dramatic and crazy, Rock would wear this shit when he did his own ceremonies and rites and, and whatnot. And I do have a picture somewhere of him wearing this crown. And it, I mean, it's not like the crown jewels. It's like a, I don't want to say a paper Burger King crown, but somewhere more towards that than probably like plastic or a Halloween costume or something. Now, we've seen that for whatever reason, Rock had certain people that he liked to pick on and torture more than others. And Claude was one of these people. So one day, he got mad at Claude for some reason, probably something totally stupid, and made him walk around for eight hours with an elastic band around his scrotum. Not surprisingly, this caused permanent damage. So we probably can figure what Rock's answer to this was. Time for surgery, which he liked to do. So he cut open Claude's scrotum, picked out the infected testicle, and cauterized the wound with a hot iron. Then he took a vote of the gang. Should Claude be stoned to death for offending God? Again, I have no idea what he did that was so offensive. Luckily for Claude, the group voted no. Then, he, he still wasn't done with Claude, though. He threatened to open his abdomen with an acetylene torch. So Claude ran away into the woods and hid for a couple days. And a lot of the other people did this, too. 
when Rock was drunk and on a rampage, they would run into the woods and hide, give them time to sober up, and then they would come back. Why they didn't just keep running, I have no idea. Giselle would actually run to her father's house and stay there, but Rock would call her and beg her to come back, and this is just like abusive husbands act. Please, I'm sorry, I didn't mean it, I'll never do it again, blah blah blah, and unfortunately she would buy into it and come back, and he would be nice to her for a few days before he would start abusing her again. In February of 1987, he threw a hunting knife at her, making a three-inch deep wound in her thigh. That is pretty deep. Think of that, three inches. So, of course, he was drunk at this time, and he fell asleep, and then he woke up two hours later, found that clot had formed, because, you know, that's how the body heals wound, is by forming clots. But he decided that this was a cause for surgery. So he reopened the wound, probed it with a red-hot instrument, and poured in boiling water. A week later, surprise, the wound was infected. So how he decided to handle this was he opened the wound again and put in salt, olive oil, and spruce gum. Can you imagine how painful that had to be? I mean, I, I can't even imagine. So poor Giselle tries to escape again. But for whatever reason, like a boomerang, she just keeps coming back. He beat three-month pregnant Nicole, causing her to miscarry. He squeezed Gabrielle and Giselle's nipples with vice grips till they bled. Ow. I'm like literally holding my boobs because, oh, just the thought of that. Poor Claude. You know, he really had it in for Claude for some reason. He hung him from the ceiling. I don't even know how. Well, who knows? So while he's hanging there from the ceiling, which had to be pretty torturous by itself, he ordered the wives to pluck out all of his pubic hair. He beat a horse to death and ordered Claude to burn him. And this part's, well, I was going to say this part's really gross, but it's all gross. Who are we kidding? Gabrielle's uterus prolapsed and it protruded three inches from her vagina. What that means, prolapsed uterus, it occurs when your pelvic floor muscles weaken and can't support the uterus. Like, it can't hold it anymore. Like, the muscles literally get too weak and it just kind of falls. Well, that's what happened to Gabrielle. And, of course, you know, we can't go to a real doctor or anything because we fix all of the medical issues here. So what he did was he punched it back inside, or tried to. He punched, tried to get it back inside, just like, you know, stuff it in. That didn't work. So he fashioned a cone out of wood, like a plug, tried to plug everything up in there. Needless to say, this didn't fix the problem either. So it happened that around this time was when Rock went to Utah to meet with his fellow wacko. So Gabrielle went to a woman's shelter, but I can't figure her out. She's there. She's safe. Why doesn't she stay there? She didn't go to a doctor. Instead, she went back to Rock. But he's not done playing around yet with this problematic uterus. He wants to keep trying to figure it out. Because remember, he knows so much about medicine and surgery. So then he tied a string around it and tried to pull it like you do... I don't know if you ever did when you were a kid. You had a loose tooth. You tie the string around it and you tried to yank the tooth out. Well, that's what he did. For Unfortunately, uteruses and teeth are two very different things. I think he would have learned that in one of the many books that he read. Well, that didn't work either. Fortunately, within a year, she would have a partial hysterectomy at a real hospital by real surgeons and fix the problem for good. So finally, we come to the beginning of the end, fall 1988. And Rock has one more trick up his so-called sleeve. One final act of surgery slash torture that would lead to a death. That would eventually lead to his downfall. Solange made the mistake of mentioning that she had abdominal pain. And Rock said, oh, must be something wrong with your liver. And of course, we know how he treats health problems. It's surgery time. So he has Solange lay down on the kitchen table and he has Gabrielle as his assistant because if one is to do surgery, one needs an assistant, right? And Gabrielle was a nurse. So the first 
step in surgery was to give the patient an enema. Where he got this from, I have no idea. So he put an enema tube into her, and the enema consisted of molasses, oil, and water. Then he put a tube down her throat and told the other people to blow into it. No explanation for that. With a knife, he made a vertical five-inch cut on her right side, and with his bare hands, pulled out her intestines, or part of her intestines, not the entire thing. Then he ordered somebody to sew her up with needle and thread. And he said, quote, there, you'll be all right, end quote. He told Solange to take a warm bath, but she just felt worse. When she went to bed, she was bleeding from her mouth, and within hours she was dead. It would later be determined that she died from peritonitis, which occurs when fluids leak into your abdominal cavity, and this can be deadly if not treated. At first, Rock seemed to be upset, and he made, I would call them half-assed attempts at suicide. He tried to get Jacques to shoot him. He tried to OD on Tylenol. Then he tried to drown himself, but a vision from God stopped him from that. God supposedly told him, don't kill yourself. You have to do my work. Then in October of 1988, he went to see his friend in Utah, and they discussed the incident with Solange, and somehow they both convinced themselves or each other that Solange was to be a reverse birth or a spiritual rebirth. So Rock, I don't even know how I can say this with a straight face, I'm going to try, convinced himself that, he, sorry, he was pregnant with Solange, like her spirit was going to be reborn through him. So he goes back to the commune and he convinces somebody to perform a marriage. And this would be a marriage by proxy between him and Solange's spirit. He ordered Claude, again, Claude gets all the shit work, to exhume Solange. And out of everything, this is probably the most disturbing, at least in my opinion. He had Gabrielle cut her body open, pour some vinegar in to keep uh, worms away, because, you know, worms like dead bodies. Buried her again, dug her up a few days later, and for some reason Jacques is picked for this chore. Jacques drills a hole in her skull. And this is like Jeffrey Dahmer shit here. Rock then masturbated into the hole in her skull, convinced that his sperm would resurrect her. He kept one of her ribs in a leather pouch with him as like a trophy or souvenir. Then Solange was cremated, but not before everybody took some of her bones to keep. And Rock himself kept a jar with some body fragments and olive oil into which he would periodically masturbate in an attempt to bring her back to life. Spoiler alert, didn't work. So he goes to Utah again, and I still want to know where he's getting all the money to do this. He has his very last baby, and Francine would be the mother, with him. He gives the baby to his friend Joseph, because he doesn't want the baby taken by authorities. They had an argument over how Rock treated his wives, and this would be the first person ever to say, hey dude, that's not right, the way you treat your wives. Well, this only caused Rock to be more determined to abuse them and torture them. And amazingly, this group was able to hide Solange's death from her family and the police, as well as the birth of two more kids. So in July of 1989, he's drunk on a rampage. Everybody runs and hides in the woods, as, as they've learned. Except for Gabrielle. I don't know if she was just too slow or what. But he remembered that she had a sore pinky, so he's in doctor mode now. He told her to put her hand on the table, and before she could even react or ask what are you doing or whatever, he took a hunting knife and just impaled her to the table by the hand. He left her there for 45 minutes. Then he comes back with another knife, and he whittles away the skin and bone on her forearm like you would 
whittle away wood, and Gabrielle didn't make a peep. Then he takes her to a stump outside. He takes a dull meat cleaver. You could probably see where this is going. And after a couple tries, because remember he's drunk, he cuts off her whole arm from under the elbow. Still, she didn't cry or make a peep. The next day, she went to a women's shelter, but she came back when Jacques called and begged her to come back. A couple days later, Rock decided that her stump was gangrenous, which it probably was. So he cuts out the infection with scissors. He also cut off a chunk of her breast. I don't know if the gangrene had spread or what. Oh, it wasn't done yet. Then, I guess just for good measure, he whacked her on the head with the side of an axe. So she ran into the woods, and this is the worst. She found maggots in her head wound. Maggots. Can you imagine reaching up to fill your bump on your head and filling maggots? Oh my god, I cannot, I, oh. So she goes back, and he's either still drunk or drunk again. Who knows with him? So he takes a piece of metal and heats it into like a torch and cauterizes her stump. And he was so drunk, he kept dropping the uh, torch on Gabrielle. Finally, the ending we've all been waiting for. Well, one of them. There's a couple good ones coming up. August 16th, 1989. Gabrielle finally, finally decided, okay, fuck this dude, fuck this shit, fuck aliens, I've had enough, and went to a real hospital. She made up a story to explain her missing arm, but they weren't buying it. They called the police and she told them what had happened for real. So they filed aggravated assault charges against Rock. The police went to the compound to get him, but Rock, Jacques, Chantel, Nicole, and the two babies had fled to Quebec. Other people had finally seen the light, so to speak, and went home to their families. It took them six weeks to find these motherfuckers. On October 6th, coincidentally, the day that they're found, Giselle told authorities about Solange's death. These people were charged with criminal negligence causing bodily harm, and they were sentenced as follows. Jacques, five years. Chantel, two years minus one day. And Nicole, 18 months. Rock was sentenced to 12 years, which was later reduced to 10 on appeal, but that doesn't really matter because in January of 93, he pled guilty to second-degree murder in the death of Solange, and the plea deal was that he would never be tried for all the other assaults on everybody else. Gabrielle went to a home for battered women and stayed there, and she eventually would write a book. And she also, I guess what you call, made a clean break and was healed as much as one can heal from such a thing. And she went on to talk to kids at schools about her experiences and the dangers of cults. In January of 1993, Rock was sentenced to life, which he served in Millhaven Maximum Security Prison, later the home of none other than Paul Bernardo. He was placed in protective custody because he had death threats, imagine that, and the authorities thought that he still exercised control over some of the followers, just like, again, just like Manson. The most devoted of all of these wives was undoubtedly Francine. She had had five kids with him. She told media that she remained, quote, madly in love with him. And then she had this to say, quote, people try to make Rock sound like a monster, like a butcher, but he is not that. Most of the time, he was not drinking and performing his operations. He was a marvelous man who was full of passion, intelligence, and originality. He loved to laugh and dance, end quote. Excuse me, ma'am, those weren't operations. Those were torture sessions. When you cut people's limbs off, that is called torture. A neighbor told the media, quote, All the residents knew about them, but they didn't know anything untoward was going on because that wasn't discovered until later, end quote. In 1993, McLean's, which is a Canadian magazine, did a big 
I think the word is expose on the cult, and the name of it, name of it was Savage Messiah, and that is where I got a lot of information for this podcast. Savage Messiah was also the title of a book written in 1994, and that book was written by some of the people who were attached to that magazine. There was also a movie made in 2002, and I've neither read the whole book. It's out there, but it's really expensive, and the movie I've not seen. Many of the cult members had to be deprogrammed by therapists. Nowadays, there actually are therapists who specialize in that. We'll talk about that a little bit more later, but here's the happy ending I promised everybody. On February 26th, 2011, in Dorchester Penitentiary in New Brunswick, a convict named Matthew McDonald came up to the guard station and set a bloody shank down on the counter. You know, a shank is a prison-made weapon. And he said, quote, That piece of shit is down on the range. Here's the knife. I've sliced him up. End quote. So the guards went down the hall and found Rock Terrio, age 63, dead in a pool of his own blood. He had been stabbed several times in the neck. And his own son, Francois, told the media that he was surprised that, quote, dad wasn't killed sooner. I would have to agree with that. Now, before we get into psychology, usually here we would go over the seven types of killers as set forth by the FBI and determine what type of killer he was. Actually, he doesn't really fit as a killer because as crazed and maniacal as he was, all the people he tortured and everything, the only death he caused was Solange and he didn't really set out to kill her, but we can still put him in a category. And that would be the messiah or missionary type. That's the person, usually psychotic, who feels the need to kill certain types of people, like maybe sex workers or whatever it is, because they're on a mission from God or some such belief. And that description fits him to a T. Now, let's discuss cults. What is a cult exactly? This information I got from study.com. A cult is defined as a group with a particular and often dangerously fanatical ideology that has certain characteristics. It comes from the Latin cultus, meaning worship. A cult usually has these ingredients in it. A charismatic leader, living or dead, like a messiah or prophet, and that would be rock, aka Moses. Ideological purity, meaning members are discouraged from questioning the doctrine and any doubts that the member's voice are met with shame or punishment. Check. Conformity and control. There is an extreme degree of control over the lives of the people what they can wear, eat, who they can have relations with, and the members are also encouraged to police each other or tattle on each other. And that would also be a check. You know, the tunics they all wore, they weren't allowed to do this and that. They were told who they could have sex with, who they could talk to, just about everything. Mind-altering practices. And these include sleep deprivation, chanting, meditation, mind-altering drugs. The point of this is to break down the people's defenses and make them malleable. I have to point out that I don't really think meditation is mind-altering. Well, I guess it depends. I mean, I meditate and I just don't really see it as a weapon, but maybe that's my own ignorance. Maybe some people do use it that way. Manson was famous for using drugs, mind-altering drugs, like especially LSD. He would feed to his followers in loads, but he would never take any himself because he wants to remain in control. There's no suggestion that Terrio did this either, but he did deprive his people of sleep. Remember at the very beginning when they were building their first cabin, Somebody said we were so hungry and tired and worn out that we were more susceptible to his bullshit. 
they form an us versus them mentality. And that one's pretty obvious. You know, we're the good people. Everybody else is the bad people. Like your family, your parents, other people in society. The cult is considered superior. Something else a cult does is called isolation, which is pretty obvious, and love bombing. New members are sometimes what's called love bombed, which means showered with love and praise. Manson was really famous with this, and what he would do, most of his followers were females for obvious reasons, because he liked to uh, fuck all of them, but um, whenever he got a new woman, he would make her take off all her clothes and look in a mirror, and he had this little routine he did, and he would say, look at your body, look how beautiful you are, look at you know, you use your imagination to fill in the blanks. This is beautiful, and that's beautiful, and blah, blah, blah. And that's nice and everything, I guess. But then he would turn crazy. This dude here, he definitely isolated people. But I don't see, or in all the research I did, I never saw any instance of this love bombing thing going on. And this is a really big one with him. Apocalyptic thinking. The leader prepares the group for a cataclysmic event. These are called doomsday cults. There actually are different kinds of cults. Most of them are religious. Some are particular in this thing that the end of the world's going to come. Uh, Manson's cult was that way. He preached about there's going to be a race war between, I think he used the words whitey and blacky, and what's Heaven's Gate, remember those ones in California, and they said the Comet Hellbop is going to come, well it did, and it means the world's going to end, and something about a spaceship is going to come and take us all, and we all have to kill ourselves, and they all committed suicide. Those are doomsday cults. And finally, time and energy. The followers are expected to devote time, energy, and money. In some cases, all of their money to the cult. And that would definitely be the case with Rock's cult. All cults are started by people who are charismatic and good at getting people to listen to them and follow them and believe their bullshit. They usually target people who are dissatisfied with life, looking for something to join, lonely, maybe just down on their luck, or want to belong to some to something. All cult leaders by nature are narcissistic. I think that kind of goes without saying. So, who joins cults? This one, for me, was harder to understand, because I don't know about you, but throughout this story, I kept thinking to myself, what is wrong with you people? Why don't you leave? Why are you taking this shit? Why don't you just run away? Like, it's it's so bizarre that it really is hard to wrap your mind around why anybody would stay and put up with behavior like this. Well, according to therapists, there's no set profile or set of traits of people who join cults, but they do have some things in common. They may want self-improvement or a sense of community. Cults are usually marketed as organizations or groups that promote betterment, like some kind of self-improvement. And that could be financial self-improvement, sexual, but I think it's usually like a spiritual or philosophical type of self-improvement. They target the need for community, relationships, like I said before, lonely people, People who are vulnerable, people who have recently had some kind of trauma or tragedy, and narcissistic, domineering, abusive cult leaders like Rock Terrio are expert at smelling out people like this. So was Manson, by the way. According to Psychology Today, cults actually change your brain. And this was really interesting. The article I read said that nobody joins a cult. They're recruited. And... There was a quote, cult leaders are typically malignant narcissists and want people who will be obedient to them, end quote. And that fits rock to a T. They get people to do what they want using behavior modification techniques. And that will be rewards and punishment, isolation, reinforcement of a new identity. 
Manson gave people new names, and I think he actually used Beatles songs to name his people. And this wacko used the Bible to give people new identities. That's called reprogramming people, changing their minds and, I guess, actually their brains. And then when they leave the cult, the therapist's job is to deprogram them or rinse their brains of all the bullshit they've been fed. I really don't know how long that takes. I've not read much about that, but I guess common sense says that the longer you've been in a cult, the harder it is to deprogram you. And I mean, it's bad enough, the adults, like you could think, okay, you're a grown-ass man or woman, you should know better, you can leave if you want, but the kids who were born into this, they had no choice. And I just hope that all of them were able to be, I don't think fixed is the word, but cured or healed or okay, I guess. And wow, these, this dude is just wow. But I have some good news. I actually got a donation from PayPal from Melissa. Thank you so much, Melissa. All she did was find my PayPal address in the show notes. And you too can be like Melissa and just type it into PayPal and send me a few dollars. Because as we all know, as I say all the time, podcasting is expensive. And I have something really big coming up in the works. I'm real tempted to let the cat out of the bag, but I'm not for now. I'm going to keep in guessing for a little bit. But of course, I'll tell you when it happens. But it's something really, really big. So next week, I'm going to do a brand new case. And by brand new, I mean like hot off the press, just went to court and... This person was literally just sentenced. So this is like as fresh as a case can be. And I think that you are going to like it. And these episodes are dedicated to all of the people who suffered under Rock Terrio. And please, whatever you do, don't join a cult. Class dismissed.